I had received my lymphoma diagnosis maybe a few months earlier, and I knew that I wanted to do more. I knew that I wanted to give back. And the more that I thought about it, the more I began to realize that maybe surfing, maybe doing something with the ocean and that passion was the right channel for my philanthropic energy. Hey, it's your friend Jason Mraz, the official spokesperson of the Good Tidings Foundation. And what an honor it is. On behalf of Good Tidings Foundation, we welcome you to the fourth season of the Good Tidings podcast that highlights the goodness in people. This episode is proudly sponsored by the San Francisco Giants. You can go to sfgiants.com for updates on the Giants and information on game tickets, special events, and promotions for the 2023 season. And now, enjoy the podcast. This episode of the Good Tidings podcast finds us sitting at GT headquarters in Burlingame, California for a chat with the founder of the Aloha Award. So Mark Hartman, welcome to the Good Tidings podcast. Thanks, Larry. It's a real pleasure to be here. So if you follow this podcast, you know I put a fair amount of attention towards individuals doing good in and around the ocean, and this episode definitely falls into this category. So Mark, I want to start out kind of at the beginning of your life and share everyone where you grew up. Sounds like it because of where your father was doing his work, and tell us about your dad and where you grew up and how the ocean may have initially inspired you. Yeah, so I grew up in a a place that doesn't exist anymore, actually, which is the Panama Canal Zone. For those of you who don't know what the Canal Zone is, it was a tiny strip of land about 10 miles wide that stretched from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean in Panama, which was U.S. territory. So I was born and raised on U.S. territory in a foreign country, which is kind of a strange thing. And my dad uh, was a pediatrician working for the Canal Zone Commission and then subsequently for the Navy. And my mom is a Brazilian woman, and they met in Wisconsin, of all places, in the middle of the winter, hit it off, and um, ultimately decided to move to Panama sort of as a middle ground between my dad's birthplace here in the Bay Area and my mom's birthplace in uh, Fortaleza, Brazil. So I grew up in an absolutely magical place. Literally, behind our house, we had three species of monkeys. We had armadillos. We had iguanas. We had giant snakes. We had all kinds of little critters running around. And so I was always surrounded by nature. And lo and behold, my dad in, I think, 1968 bought a surfboard, which he always described as being so big that when he put it on the top of his Volkswagen Beetle, the Volkswagen Beetle would sort of start to take off as soon as he hit about 30 miles an hour. So he fell in love with surfing. He had previously been a swimming instructor, which is how he paid his way through college and medical school. So after I was born, I think the first thing that he did once I got out of the hospital was stick me into the water. And we would do everything in the water together. I mean, whether it was the pool or the ocean, I was there. I remember my mom telling me a story about my dad taking me out um, when I was probably two years old. We were in Key West, actually, at that point. He took me out into the ocean while he was doing some lobster diving 
forgot to bring my life's preserver. So he just basically told me to sit in the boat. I don't know what he was thinking. You know, you can't really persuade a two-year-old to sit in the boat. So he swims off. He's about 100 meters from the boat, apparently, and is diving to get lobster and keeping an eye on me. And all of a sudden, he looks back at the boat, and I'm gone. So he swims frantically back to the boat. And luckily, because of his swim lessons, you know, I was happy as a clam just swimming around the boat, holding onto the motor. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that was the beginning of my love for the ocean, and from there, it just progressed into, you know, more snorkeling, more bodyboarding, and ultimately stand-up surfing. Yeah, and I, I just, in talking to all these watermen and waterwomen, you know, the people that love the ocean, there's definitely a pull or a calling to go near it more often. And I'm fortunate, as, as you are, to live very close to the ocean, but it's not close enough. We actually have to go to it or touch it or be on the beach. What is that? And is there... Can you explain that at all? <laughs> you know, I, I, there's, there's a lot of emerging science behind that, as I, as I know you've discussed with, you know, the various people that have been on the show. But, I mean, I prefer to think of it just as magic. I mean, I, I feel like water is where we came from. Water is where we ultimately return to. I mean, I know there's the whole, you know, from dust to dust or whatever the expression is in religion. But for me, it's that the equivalent of dust in that expression is really water. I, I feel like that's our point of origin. And connecting with that point of origin is really what creates that magic and makes us feel, or at least makes me feel, whole and connected. And I think it's that connection that makes it such a healing experience, not to mention a really entertaining one. Yeah, yeah, amen to that. Following college, I know you had a very successful career in finance, and you actually taught grad school at Stanford School of Business. And then in 2017, you had a little health scare that shifted maybe your life's priorities a little bit, wanting to do something a little more positive in the world. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, so when I was growing up in Panama, we... I mean, again, it was a beautiful place, but this was back in the time when, you know, malaria was a real issue. You know, millions of people continue to die around the world from malaria every year. So there was a lot of DDT spraying in the area, and there were just a lot of carcinogens around. And a couple of my friends um, ended up dying. My best friends ended up dying quite young in their uh, mid to late 20s, early 30s. So, you know, cancer was always something that was on my mind. So in 20... 17, I woke up one day and I felt some lymph nodes kind of enlarged in my, in my groin area. And um, I thought, well, that's a little bit strange. You know, maybe I have an infection. Next thing I know, one of my best friends who's a doctor, you know, is taking a look at it. He's like, you probably should get this looked at. So I did. And I ended up receiving a follicular lymphoma diagnosis. So as it turns out, as my very good friend and doctor Brad told me, if you're going to get cancer, this is a good one to have. Because it's, it's very likely that something else is going to kill you and not this. And that turned out to be the case. So, you know, it was very early stage follicular lymphoma, which, you know, is, is a disease that no longer kills people unless it's caught quite late and is a very aggressive form of follicular lymphoma. So I fortunately have this, you know, what I call a gift because in essence, I have no symptoms you know, my life is completely normal. I'm totally healthy. If you, if you look at my blood panels, they're the same as any other human. But I have this tangible, ever-present reminder of the finitude of life. And as my wife used to tell me even before I got that lymphoma diagnosis, it's the finitude of life that makes it precious. So 
this gift that I've been given, I mean, I really don't see it as a burden. I see it as a gift. I, I wake up every day thinking, wow, my life is finite. What are you going to do with today? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm grateful for it. Yeah. And then I noticed in reading your bio further, you kind of land in a very interesting spot working for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Now, I'm, I'm sure you had a very big impact on their financial investments and what have you. But that had to be pretty impressive spot to land for someone who's going to think about going into the nonprofit charity world. Absolutely. I mean, I dabbled in the in the charity world previously. So I'd done a couple of months of volunteer work with a great organization called TechnoServe, which is a nonprofit that helps smallholder farmers in Africa and in other developing countries around the world try and scale and open new markets, etc. So you know, I'd always had this idea that business and capitalism can can be a force for good. And so I, when I got in touch with the Gates Foundation and asked them a little bit of, of what they were doing, in essence, what they had done is they'd set up this strategic investment fund, which is, think of it as a venture capital fund, but with no purpose other than to advance the Gates Foundation's programmatic goals. So sometimes we would make significant multi-million dollar investments knowing that they would absolutely lose money and be a zero. But we knew that if that biotech organization, for example, that we were investing in was going to produce some really interesting research before it went bust, that it was worth funding. We did other things, for example... There's a program at the Gates Foundation, which is absolutely spectacular, which is called the Volume Guarantee Program. So, for example, if there's a company, a biotech company in India, it's developing a vaccine that's for a disease in Africa, for example. They know they're not going to make any money on that vaccine because the purchasing power of that patient population is tiny. So the Gates Foundation will go to them and say, hey, you know what? We'll guarantee that we're going to buy 50 million or 100 million doses from you. And that gives that company the confidence to then invest in that manufacturing facility and produce that vaccine, which could obviously be life-saving, because they know that on the other side of that contract is the Gates Foundation, which clearly has the money to honor it. And then the Gates Foundation works with other organizations like Gavi or the World Health Organization to actually get that vaccine into arms of kids in Africa. So it's, it's a beautiful example of the what I call the power of constructive capital, a nonprofit organization working with the private sector to do good in the world. Yeah, that's so interesting because I know in this country, pharmaceutical and medical companies, you know, they're, they're driven by profits. And you bring the great point of they can just circumvent the whole way we do business here to help a third world or emerging country. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So for me, it's all about creating win-win opportunities, you know, and, and I try and take that mindset into everything that I do, whether it's in my traditional business career, whether it's in my philanthropic initiatives or, you know, roles like with the Gates Foundation or frankly, into the stuff that I'm doing now with the Aloha Award. Yeah. And then you're reading an article on Surfline and for people that don't know, Surfline is probably the leading now online go-to for surfing, the ocean, anything. It has surf cameras all over the world. It's really the landing spot for anything ocean. And you read an article on Surfline that points you in a specific direction or a thought. Tell us about that. 
I had received my lymphoma diagnosis maybe a few months earlier, and I knew that I wanted to do more. I knew that I wanted to give back. And the more that I thought about it, the more I began to realize that maybe surfing, maybe doing something with the ocean and that passion was the right channel for my philanthropic energy. And then, you know, how the universe tends to throw you a bone or a bit of inspiration. You know, I'm sitting on Surfline checking the surf at Ocean Beach and, you know, up comes this article about, this video article about Ian Glover, who's a well-known surfer here in the Bay Area. He runs Big Dog Surf Camp, which is a surf camp for kids. And he also does a bunch of work with disadvantaged kids. So, in addition to his for-profit surf camp, he just uses that same infrastructure and he'll take kids out, you know, from Hunter's Point or Bayview surfing. And so, you know, I, I saw that story and I thought, wow, this is really cool. I wonder if other people are doing it. And lo and behold, you know, as you know, there's this giant just network of surf therapy organizations around the world. I mean, literally hundreds of them around the world, many of which work with disadvantaged kids. You know, you've actually had Eddie Donnellan here on the show, who's uh, become a good friend of mine and runs an incredible surf therapy organization for kids called the Me Water Foundation. So I started looking into the Me Water Foundation. I started looking into all of these other surf therapy organizations and found that there were, I mean, not just organizations that were helping kids, there were organizations that were helping other types of vulnerable populations, whether it was people with physical disabilities, people with uh, mental disabilities, people with PTSD. And I, you know, sort of scratched my head and I put my business hat on and I thought, what can one person do with limited capital and, you know, a decent amount of time, but not a huge amount of time. And I thought, maybe I should be supporting the people that are already doing the work. And that's how the Aloha Award was born, with that notion that there are already great people out there doing incredible work. It must be exhausting. They must struggle to get funding. How can I support them? Yeah. I've been in this game long enough and have seen the organizations doing this work, that specific sector of people helping others and using the ocean to do so. The passion they have for that, that they give so much of that, that bringing the business skills to them the financial wherewithal, I think, is where they're really lacking. And to support that, I think, is brilliant. Because you see the results. You see what they're doing. They're all run very grassroots. So I think that that just makes so much sense to me. So Yeah. I mean, you know, again, it's it's I try and put my 30 years of investing to work. And I think as a venture capitalist, what can I do to scale these organizations? They need money. They need a little bit of help with business-related stuff. But you know what? They also need a recharge. They need to be seen. They need to be recognized. And they need to, you know, have an opportunity to get away and just recover. Because yeah. as you say, the one common denominator across all of these organizations is these people will literally give you the shirt off their backs. They're, they're all in. And it doesn't matter whether it's part-time for them, it's full-time for them. They're just all in. Yeah. Yeah. I've never met anyone unhappy that's in and around the ocean. That's for sure. So before we get to the mission of it, how did you land on the name? <laughs> Great question. So I just love this concept of aloha and the aloha spirit. And for your listeners who don't know what that is, it's one of those beautiful words that really encompasses a lot of different concepts, kindness, unity, patience, compassion embedded into a single word. And by the way, 
the Hawaiians aren't the only culture in the world that have a word for that type of goodness. In South Africa, there's a word called Ubuntu, which means something similar. In Fiji, they have the word Bula. But it all comes back to that incredible spirit of, of giving, loving, and helping. And so I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And for any of us who have been in the water surfing, you know it can be sometimes a difficult and hostile place. You know, Waves are a finite resource and there are, are often more people than there are waves and that can create a lot of tension. And so what I really wanted to do was spread that aloha spirit, cultivate it, spread it, not just in the water, but outside of the water. And I felt like the best way to do that, again, coming back to this notion of scaling and ripple effect, was to identify exceptional individuals who really embody that aloha, ubuntu, bula spirit, and get them out into the world, get them doing more stuff, make them more visible, support their initiatives. Tell us about the mission of the Aloha Award. Yeah, so the mission is, is you know, it's as simple as helping those individuals spread the Aloha spirit. So how do we do it? There's a nomination process, an open nomination process, which we publicize on our website. And, you know, other, we have other partners like the WSL that get, helps us get the word out. And anybody anywhere in the world can nominate anybody who is an ambassador of the Aloha spirit. So what does that mean? There are really two requirements. One is you have to be a nice person in the water. You can't be an <laughs> asshole in the water. You know what I mean? Sure. You've got to be a good human. And that's, not, that's a necessary condition, but certainly not a sufficient one. The second requirement is really where the rubber meets the road. And that is that these are individuals who are giving back in some meaningful way to their local or to the global community. And typically, that happens in one of two ways. Either they're involved in ocean conservation efforts. I see you're actually wearing a t-shirt that says save the waves which i love great organization but the more prevalent way that these people are giving back is through surf therapy organizations so that's really and and by the way those are just two examples ocean conservation and surf therapy we have received nominations for people that are doing other things that are beneficial to their local or global community but those tend to be where most of our nominees come from so we receive these nominations last year we had i think 150 or 160 we have five incredible judges Chris Promacio, who's the head of the International Surf Therapy Organization and one of your former podcast interviewees. Greg Burdish, who is one of the legendary Burdish brothers from South Africa, who also is a philanthropist in his own right, also been on your podcast, <laughs> coincidentally, or maybe not. Jesse Richman, who's a world champion kite surfer. Brisa Hennessy, who's in the top 10 female surfers in the world, amazing human being. And then also uh, Chris Dennis, who won the award in 2021. So they parse through all of those nominations. They do the research. As you can imagine, with a global, well-connected set of judges like that, we're usually no more than one degree of separation from any nominee. And that really enables us to zero in on five finalists that the judges then interview in depth, do some due diligence on, and then ultimately we have a winner, a runner-up, and three finalists. And all of them receive something. 
So the winner of the award gets a $10,000 grant for his or her charity, an all-expenses-paid trip to, in my opinion, the best surf destination on the planet, which is Nomotu Island in Fiji, one of our incredible sponsors that gives us several spots every year to host Aloha Award winners and runners-up. And then they also get a stipend, and this is important, to attend the annual ISTO conference, which is a gathering of their peers. It's a five-day, four- or five-day-long conference, and there's just a lot of learning that goes on there. So that's the knowledge component. So there is a financial support component, there's a rest and recharge component, and there's a knowledge component. So that's what the Aloha Award is trying to do. So the winner receives those, those things. The runner-up receives a, a slightly smaller cash grant, $5,000, but the same benefits. And then all of the other finalists receive two and a half grand each, as well as an online ticket to the ISTO conference. So that's what we're really trying to do is, is spread some cash, some rest and recharge, and some knowledge. Yeah. And I know reading the mission, especially on the surf therapy side, and I've seen the need for this as I've spoken at ISTO conference a few times in the past, but you're serving underserved communities, many of them youth-based, first responders, which we hear so much from them and the benefits of being in the in and around the ocean for their mental well-being, veterans with PTSD, refugees, and people with physical or mental challenges, and getting them into the water and exposing to the water. So just all of them equally, you know, you can't even separate them, the importance for all those groups to get in and around the ocean and how, they, how that heals them. So my first question, when I hear 160 and you go down to five, can those five uh, maybe not the winner, but can they reapply or how is that? Because you, you probably in your heart want to give more out or how do I expedite this and get more exposure and get help more of these organizations survive? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, you know, the binding constraint right now is I fund a hundred percent of the charity, which is obviously not sustainable. However, last year we got our first corporate sponsor and you know, the beauty of that corporate sponsorship is that it allows us to do more. So what I've committed to do personally is to fund all of those things that I described. So when we get corporate sponsorship dollars, they're what I call special projects. So what are we doing with that money? One of the things that we're doing in collaboration with ISTO is developing a safety video that's specifically oriented to surf therapy organizations. So we want people, we want these surf therapy organizations that, as you mentioned, are often grassroots organizations to have the tools to do this safely. So safety is always the number one concern. We want to basically develop this video for free and get it out into the public domain. Other things that we can do, for example, create volunteer networks, create mentor networks, connect these you know, amazing runners of nonprofits to business people that can help them with all sorts of different things, whether it's creating a business plan or a budget, fundraising, marketing, learning how to tell their story and actually make a fundraising pitch. So the ambition of the organization really is to do more, increase the amount of cash prizes that we're offering people, but also continue to do these special projects that we hope will continue to help get the word out. And in addition, with some of that corporate sponsorship dollars, we're, we're trying to advance the science behind surf therapy. As you know, ISTO is funding a lot of that science. So with some of our money, we are contributing to that research effort. So it's really a combination of how can we scale these amazing organizations? And secondly, how can we advance the cause of making surf therapy ubiquitous, hopefully at some point 
actually accepted by insurance companies as a traditional mental therapeutic intervention. And yeah, and, and, and help as many people as we can. But going back to your question, I mean, it's a tough job for the judges, man. I mean, <laughs> you know, Jesse uh, Richmond, who's a great guy, you know, and is completely comfortable jumping his kite um, 100 feet into the air over piers and kite surfing at you know, in building tall waves at Jaws tells me that this is both the most rewarding and the scariest thing that he does every year. Because to choose these individuals is hard. But yes, people can apply for multiple years. And in fact, as you know, these nonprofits tend to go through lots of transition, lots of growth. So you may not be doing something that elevates you to the top one year, and in the next year, you find your, your groove and you're just doing amazing things. So we encourage people to continue to, to apply for the award. If I could give the award to every single person that I've met doing ocean conservation and surf therapy, I would do it. Of course, you know, my <laughs> wife and I would then be living in a tent next to our apartment as right. opposed to the apartment itself. But that's the goal. Yeah, I find it interesting, too, because you mentioned people in and people in California are lucky because everyone in California lives drivable distance to the beach. But if you ever are at the beach, a surfer or person, a waterman, they will kind of give you everything. So the nature of them as givers is already built into them. But the negative is they probably would give away too much and then have nothing left to give as a charity. So I think giving them this support and guidance to develop their nonprofit or charity is wonderful. And the beauty of ISTO, which is the International Surf Therapy Organization, Growth is the identification of this as a positive thing in this country. It is prescribed in other countries. It is a medical prescription you can get, and it replaces drugs and other things that people need. You know, and just in my research, being in the ocean, the ocean water itself, one, you get cold therapy if you want it, if you want to go in without a wetsuit like I choose to do. Some people look at me strangely. But the water is filled with all the minerals you would take naturally in supplements. People drink Gatorade because they want electrolytes. Go in the ocean. It's free electrolytes. So you just immerse your body in this healing water, not to mention just the beauty of the ocean and all the things that come from that. So it really, you know, I've seen it now, kind of been in and around it for the past few years of what it does for people. You know, some people might think it's a little phony baloney medicine, but it's, it's real stuff. It's real stuff. And, you know... I was just on the Motu with the 2023 Aloha Award winner, Ben Bronzima, who is a former policeman from the Netherlands who was diagnosed with very severe PTSD. And, um, and he was telling me a little bit about their program. I mean, you can imagine going surfing in the Netherlands, right? I mean, it's like the surf ain't good, man. And it's freezing. <laughs> you know, the yeah. wind's howling. The waves, I mean, literally, I, you know, the, the waves are like, five feet apart from one another. It's just wind chop, you know? And he gets first responders and vets with PTSD out in the water with a team of three people. So, I, well, four, there's really four forces in the water. There's the healing power that you just described. And they have a traditional therapist specializing in PTSD, a speech therapist, because PTSD can really affect the brain and the way that people can, ex you know, they have trouble expressing themselves often. And an occupational therapist, because often, you know, vets and, and cops and first responders have significant physical injuries. So you can imagine the therapeutic benefits that come from being in a safe space, that's the water, 
you know, with this amazing guy, right? Who's, you know, I mean, he's six foot, he's a six foot four smile, basically. And these three surf guides who happen to be, you know, occupational speech and traditional therapists in the water. I mean, you're just, you're totally enveloped in this cocoon of healing. Yeah. And it's not surprising, obviously, that the outcomes that people have from that sort of experience are significantly better than the outcome that they would have just by using ther- by going to therapy alone. So it's this potent combination of the ocean plus this therapeutic knowledge that surf therapy providers have and the safe space that they create for people to be vulnerable, for people to grow emotionally, that really, you know, is magic. Yeah. And for people who want to know more about this or support your efforts, how can they find out more about it? We have a website, the Aloha Award, and you can also follow us on Instagram at, at Aloha Award. And, you know, if anybody wants to uh, support the Aloha Award in any way, please, by all means, uh, have them get in touch with me and we'll definitely find a way that they can help. There's a lot of organizations out there that could use that help. So one of the things that we like to do at the Aloha Award is really be a connector. You know, Chris Promacio and Isto serves a very similar role. So we can connect volunteers with surf therapy organizations, donors with surf therapy organizations, and just, and sometimes surf therapy organizations with each other, because that support network is really essential, as you know, when you've got limited funding and you're all in emotionally, you know, sometimes being able to pick up the phone and call someone who is in your shoes can be a game changer. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely put in our show notes how people can get engaged with you and connect with you to help you help others, really. And so I want to thank you for your time today. Congratulations on what you've developed. I think you found this this great opportunity to help others help more. We just look forward to the growth of the Aloha Award. So congrats again. Yeah. And if you know anybody out there that is a good candidate for the Aloha Award, please, by all means, get onto our website, nominate an amazing individual. Nominations open on January 1st of 2024. And thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about the Aloha Award, Larry. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed another episode of the Good Tidings Podcast hosted by Good Tidings Foundation founder, Larry Harper. For more information on all the good we're doing, go to goodtidings.org.